invite you to turn with me in your Bibles once again to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19. It's a well-known portion of Scripture. But the truth is, you nor I will ever exhaust the wonders of God's so great revelation. Luke chapter 19, beginning to read at verse 1. I think it is good for us to be reminded from time to time that we're not just reading ancient literature or even good religious thought. We are reading the Word of God. And it is not simply that God inspired the human authors, but what they wrote was the very breath of God. And that's what inspiration really means. Beginning to read in verse 1, And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. For today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as, as he, Zacchaeus, also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. I will try and be sensitive to time. Sometimes I make promises I can't keep, so just bear with me. Keep in mind, I'm used to going for three or four hours at a time. So now we're going to compress a whole lot into relatively little space of time. But before we do, let's bow together and ask God to guide us. Our Father, we are thankful this morning to look heavenward and address you as our Heavenly Father. We thank you for the sufficiency of the blood that Jesus shed to cleanse from every sin. We thank you for what he did for Zacchaeus and what he is still in the business of doing for people today. We thank you that as we journey through time, that you are not only our shepherd but our destination. And we're grateful for that. And just now we would ask that your spirit may grant each of us that understanding, that illumination, that your truth would become increasingly our truth. And so we commit this time to your care. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke is a fascinating portion of scripture. The human author, Gentile, wrote actually more than Paul in terms of words, volume. A little more than a quarter of the entire New Testament was written by Luke in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Though Paul wrote more books, Luke wrote more words. 
I like this portion of scripture because of the context in which it occurs. Going back into chapter 18, Jesus is simply referred to as the son of David. That is a messianic title. And it was clearly understood by everybody in that day, at least in the religious community, to recognize that as a title of deity. But here in our passage, Jesus is referred to as the son of man, and he used that title of himself more frequently than any other title. The son of man. The beauty of that is that it doesn't specify any particular language, any particular racial group. He is the son of man, something that we all share in common. We're all, now I realize this is great revelation, but we're all human beings. The fact is, he is the son of man, and he can identify with every individual, regardless of time frame, regardless of language and culture and race. He is the son of man. In fact, this 10th verse is the key verse to the entire book of Luke. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Well, there are a few things I'd like you to notice about the, the opening four verses. Here, we, we can glean this fact that the individual sinner is precious to Jesus. And I'm using the words carefully, precious. Every individual is precious to Jesus. Regardless of ability or inability, regardless of challenges in life, regardless of history, the fact is every individual, even a corrupt, fraudulent publican, is precious to Jesus. Nobody today can walk away from the gospel and say, Jesus doesn't care about me. No one can truthfully say, Jesus didn't die for me. No one can truthfully deny the fact that we are saved by faith in him alone. They can't do it truthfully. They can say words, but it doesn't constitute reality. Now, our text in verse 1 tells us that Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. A few moments before, he had approached Jericho, 19 miles north of, of Jerusalem, 800 feet below sea level. So he's going down to, to Jericho from Jerusalem, though he's actually going north. And there he met a blind man who kept calling out for the son of David to come and do something for him. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do? And he said, I'd like to have my eyesight back. And Jesus said, your faith has made you whole. And his sight was restored. What an amazing thing. Of all the crowds of people that were following Jesus, all that met him as he journeyed through Jerusalem, through Jericho rather, he came to one man, to an individual. He came there for that purpose. Now he came to a very wicked place. Jericho had been destroyed, as we know, as Joshua and the Israelites had crossed the Jordan and gone, gone into Canaan, and the walls collapsed, and, and we know the story. It's a wicked place. It was a place where they worshipped the moon, and historically, wherever moon worship occurred, there was an enormous amount of gruesome human sacrifice. It was a wicked place. It was a place condemned and under the curse of God. 
But Jesus, of all the places that he could have gone to, went to Jericho. And he went there for the purpose of one man, one man who needed to be saved, to be delivered from his sin and the consequences of an eternal hell. And he came there freely. Nobody asked him to come. There was an, uh, a decision simply on his part. So we notice the place, Jericho. We may notice the person in verse 2. Now Zacchaeus is a contradiction of terms because the term, the name Zacchaeus means pure or innocent or, or, or holy. He was corrupt from the, the, the inside out. And you had to be corrupt in order to become the chief of the publicans. He's like the chief of all the criminals. He's the, the captain of all the criminals of that time. And yet it was to this man that Jesus had special concern. Concern enough to go there to meet with him. As far as the record of scripture goes, Zacchaeus was the last person to be saved before the cross. He was the only person in that community that would be saved on that occasion. Zacchaeus was a traitor to his company, to his country. He was a, a traitor to his people, to the company that, that he kept. He was just a character without morals, without integrity. He was a man who desperately needed to be saved. Known by God and cared for by God the eternal son. Now I've noticed that Zacchaeus had a purpose. I've wondered, and maybe you have too, why did he go to this route that Jesus was, was traveling? He wanted to see Jesus. Was he just curious? Well, I sus suspect that there was a measure of curiosity, but I suspect that the greater motivation was that there was conviction going on in his life. He wanted to see Jesus. Well, we wouldn't condemn him for that. I think that's commendable. Maybe, even if it was only curiosity, at least it was good curiosity, he wanted to see Jesus. But he had an obstacle. He had two obstacles. Number one was himself. He was a little guy, very short. And he couldn't get through the crowd. He faced an obstacle, which was himself, and he faced the obstacle of the crowd. There are multitudes of people today who face obstacles. Obstacles of unbelief. Obstacles of an evolutionary mindset. An obstacle of false religion, false doctrine. Obstacles of discouragement. Obstacles of all different kinds. And yet this man was willing to overcome his short stature, and the crowd. It is, I think, very significant that this man went and found a tree. Perhaps he could see in the distance a tree that was overarching the root. And so he ran ahead. The text tells us he ran ahead and he climbed up on that tree, climbed out onto a branch so he could see Jesus. And we would commend him for that took a little effort on his part, a little thought, a little engineering, but he found the tree and he climbed up. I've noticed in verses 5 and 6, not only 
is the individual precious to Jesus. But in verses 5 and 6, the invitation to salvation was provided by Jesus. You can picture, as I can in our, our mind's eye, Jesus walking along and crowds all around him. And he came to that branch and he looked up. And he said, Zacchaeus, come on down and do it on the double. Do it hastily. How did he know his name? How would he not know his name? He is, in fact, all-knowing. And so he spoke to him personally and he said, Zacchaeus, you contradiction of terms, get down here quickly. He looked up and he saw Zacchaeus. Well, Zacchaeus saw Jesus. But the most important thing is that Jesus saw him. And there is nobody that he doesn't see. He named this man and he came down. And I would stress the fact that he did so in haste. There is always an urgency to meet Jesus. We don't know that we will have tomorrow. We don't know that time will go on as we know it today. As Jesus spoke to this man and called him by name, perhaps this was the first act of kindness this reprobate had experienced in a very long time. There's something personal about a name. And he used the name. And he said, come quickly. You see, Jesus' love for sinners guarantees that his blood can cover their sin. It is as simple as that. So he came down, he got down quickly, and Jesus said to him, I must go to your house and abide in your house. This is the only time in scripture where Jesus ever invited himself to somebody's house. And he said, I must abide in your house. Now, 16 times we read here that Jesus must do something in the gospels. We won't look at all 16. Otherwise we might be here until breakfast. But the fact is in Matthew, Chapter 16 and verse 2, Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem. Keep in mind, he is God incarnate. God in flesh. God himself incarnate. The second person of the Trinity. And he said, I must go to Jerusalem. And I must suffer many things. He must. The fact is, God can only do what is infinitely best. He cannot do anything else. He must do this. He was going to Jerusalem and would suffer and die there so that you and I could be saved through simple faith in what he accomplished. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus said, I must suffer and be killed and then he added, and rise from the dead. He could not stay dead. Because death, what put him there, sin, was canceled. Sin was judged. And provision was made for, for forgiveness, for deliverance. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 49, he said, I must be about my father's business. As he spoke to his parents. As a little child, a 12-year-old. 
In Luke chapter 4, he said, I must preach the kingdom of God. I must. I can't do anything else. Luke chapter 24, he said, I must be crucified and rise again. In John chapter 4, he said, I must, I must go through Samaria because there was a woman at a well who needed to meet him, who needed to be saved. I must go through Samaria. In John 9, he said, I must work the works of him that sent me. Yes, it is true that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world in 1 John 4:14. 4, but at the same time, he could say in Hebrews, Lo, I come to do thy will. There was total harmony between his and the Father's will. In John 10, he said in verse 16, I must bring sheep of another fold. I must. Another fold. Perhaps that's us in downtown Coldstream. I must bring sheep of another fold of another language, another culture, another time period, another continent that he didn't know even existed, that Zacchaeus didn't even know at that time. And I've noticed that Zacchaeus in verse 6 obeyed and he came and he received Jesus and the text tells us with joy, simple joy. Here is a man who is a hardened sinner and in meeting Jesus there is an instantaneous change in his life. What a tremendous thing that is. An instantaneous change. Jesus said, come on down. Now Zacchaeus could have said, you know, I like it here on the branch. It's a hot day and there's a little breeze and there's all these hot overheating people all around me. Uh, I kind of like it here. I, I think I'll just stay here. Just forget about that, what you just said. I'll, I'm not coming down. But he didn't. You see, there is power in the word that Jesus spoke to enable obedience. Didn't Jesus say, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest? There is power to come inherent in the words that Jesus spoke. And Zacchaeus complied. Now, having met Jesus... And seeing Jesus in a new light, there was a traumatic change that took place in his life. So we have the individual who is precious to Jesus. We have an invitation to salvation that was provided by Jesus. In verse 7, we find another little twist in this account. And that is that the ignorant may produce criticisms of Jesus. The Bible tells us here in the first part of verse 7 that the crowd murmured. They were followers of Jesus, at least physically followers, and yet they murmured. They complained. Now the thought behind murmuring, the, the Greek thought is indignant complaining. And that's contagious. Because the text tells us they all did it. All of this crowd that had been following Jesus became a group of murmurers, complainers with indignation. Murmuring is scripturally forbidden in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 10. 
No murmuring is to cross the lips of God's people. They not only murmured, but they also misunderstood. Were they thinking, here is a man who is on the broad road that leads to eternal hell? I don't think they were thinking that. Were they doing a little bit of self-evaluation, saying, well, why are we murmuring? We are in the presence of God incarnate, the very one who will die for us. No. They misunderstood who Jesus was and what he was there to do and what he was about to do in just a few short days from this account of going to the cross on their behalf. And I am sure they didn't realize that their murmuring would be put indelibly on the page of Scripture and that people 2,000 years into the future in a continent that they didn't know would exist, in a language that, that, that didn't exist at that time, would be taking note of their murmuring. You see, our sin has lasting effects and can't be avoided apart from God's forgiveness. In verse 8, I see the iniquity of a man, of this man, Zacchaeus, that needed to be arrested. He made confession in verse 8, openly, not excusing, not saying, well, yes, I've defrauded a lot of people, I've been unkind, and I've caused heartache and trouble for other people, but it really wasn't my fault. You see, it was my upbringing, my background, my problems. He, he wasn't saying I, I took other people's money because I had some great financial burden. No excuses. He acknowledged the fact that he was a sinner and that he needed to be saved. Confession was made, and the genuineness of that confession showed itself in that correction was made. He said, I'll, I'll give back the money that I took. In fact, I'll give back much more than what I took. And he did. I've also noticed the intention of Jesus in verses 9 and 10, to seek and to save. Jesus presented this man now who had put his faith in Jesus. He gave him assurance of salvation. Can anyone be dogmatically certain that they are on the straight and narrow road that leads to heaven? Yes, they can. And this man's assurance, Zacchaeus' assurance, was based on the word that Jesus gave. He said, this day is salvation come. He recognized that this was now a true son of Abraham, a genuine believer. He provided assurance. Where did the assurance come from? From the very words of Jesus. Don't we read in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, and these things are written that ye may know that ye have eternal life? Yes. But I see also that Jesus presented his mission. He provided assurance, but also presented his mission to seek and to save. Now that title, the Son of Man, that's a whole subject in itself. That takes us back to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. It is a messianic title, a title of God the Messiah. It shows the deity of Christ. And 
Jesus used that title of himself. He came, God, having partaken of humanity, came to seek and to save that which is lost. We're all lost by virtue of birth. We know from Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. We know that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know from Isaiah 64 that all of our, our best deeds are like filthy rags. It's not complimentary. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 underscore the fact. The fact is, he came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's all of us. Nobody's left out. Nobody could ever say truthfully, Jesus didn't die for me. He came to seek and to save. Was he sincere in his seeking? Yes. But in all of this crowd, there was only one man. Maybe one percent. Maybe only a fraction of one percent that actually got saved. He said, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, that word lost, that's another fascinating Greek word made up of two words but the thought that that comes across is that which is ruined that which is destroyed lost captures the thought very well what Jesus was saying to this man Zacchaeus and to you and to me is underscoring the fact of his own deity because God Jehovah God going back into Ezekiel chapter 34 says exactly the same thing, that he seeks to save that which is lost. So Jesus gave him assurance of salvation and assurance of who he really is. The title, the Son of Man, is come to seek and to save his mission, that which is lost, people, humanity. What a privilege we have today to be saved and to declare the message of God's so great salvation freely available to all. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we are grateful that we have such a loving Savior who cares for us, who understands us. He knows our hurts and wounds and the bumps and bruises that we accumulate as we journey through life and knows all about our imperfections and our sin and still loves us, still desires our presence for all the ages of eternity. We pray that you will help us to know him better and to reflect his likeness in our attitudes and words. For we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. If I have shared something that you don't understand or you would like to talk about, I am free to talk with you right after the meeting this morning. In closing, let's sing together, My Jesus, I Love Thee.